0: Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, a webinar series focused on the catechism Christ or Pascha. In the series, we explore the faith, worship, and life of Byzantine churches. I'm Father Daniel Dozier, and I'm joined by my co hosts, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Father Michael Wynn. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the series. All right, welcome everyone to Becoming. Byzantine. Uh, We're delighted to have you here for our second webinar. Uh, We're going to be focusing now on the faith of the church, our topic being Revelation of the Most Holy Trinity, and uh, it's a delight to be able to be involved in in this work of of sharing the good news of the Byzantine Catholic Gospel, and with all of you. uh, We know some of you come from a Byzantine tradition, some of you do not, and so it's great to either Uh, become familiar with the inheritance that's ours or to uh, get to know a little bit bit more about another Christian tradition that may not be familiar to you, and that's uh, really at the heart of what we're we're doing today, so we're delighted to be able to to be here with all of you. Our webinar is scheduled to go for 90 minutes, and so uh, throughout the day or throughout this time, we're going to be also having some prize giveaways, so we're looking forward to doing that. I'll be sharing uh, with you what that will be in just a moment. Uh, but I want to go ahead and get started with a prayer. <clears throat> so we'll start in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a short prayer from uh, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Well, loving Master, let the pure light of your divine knowledge shine brightly in our hearts and open the eyes of our minds that we may understand the proclamation of your gospel. Instill the fear of your blessed commandments in us so that having trampled all carnal desires, we may lead a spiritual life both thinking and doing everything to please you. For you, O Christ, our God, are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, and we give glory to you with your eternal Father, your all holy good and life creating spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. Well, thank you again, and I want to welcome also uh, our presenters and uh, co-hosts today. So uh, with me today is uh, uh, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani. Father Deacon, you want to say a few words about yourself for those who might have missed that first uh, session that we had last time?
1: Certainly. I'm a Ukrainian Catholic deacon. I serve two parishes in Pennsylvania, and I'm also a professor of religious studies at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, and I'm a husband and father with two wonderful little girls.
0: Wonderful. That's great. That's great. Maybe someday we'll have all our kids on, on the show. <laughs> Terrific. And uh, also with uh, with us today is uh, is Robert Klesko. Uh, Robert, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey. Uh
2: Well, first of all, I'd like to say, if we ever have my kids on the show, we won't get any work done. So I have six kids, I have five boys and one girl. So forget about it. Um, They're in the living room watching their show. So we'll keep them there. But I'm very blessed in my family. Uh, My wife's name is Andrea. Um, I'm a theology advisor at EWTN. Uh, I'm also studying I'm in my third year of diaconate formation for the Archeparchy of Pittsburgh, hoping to serve my parish here in Birmingham, Alabama, which is St. George Melkite Greek Catholic Church. So it's the only Byzantine church in town, but a really, really wonderful parish um, with a really great cantor. We were talking about liturgical singing earlier, so Reader Joseph does a great job, but it's great to
0: be with everybody. Wonderful. Thank you, Robert. And uh, Bianca Gill?
1: Good evening. Um, also have a child, but she's not present for tonight, which makes my life easier. Um, my husband and I, we just had our first baby um, back in March, and um, I'm a stay-at-home mom currently. I'm also a licensed social
3: worker, and I'm working with Father Daniel um, with his various initiatives within the Byzantine Church, of which there are many. Um, so providing administrative support.
1: Uh, my husband and I, we uh, are Ruthenian Um, Byzantine Catholic, and my husband is a deacon candidate, so we're praying for his ordination
0: um, whenever God wills. Amen. No, that's great, and uh, thank you very much, Bianca, and uh, my name is Father Daniel Dozier. I'm a Byzantine Catholic priest uh, serving at St. George's Byzantine Catholic Church and Our Lady of Perpetual Help Shrine uh, that's also on property uh, here in Olympia, Washington. I'm the husband of one and father of three and grandfather of one. So uh, very delighted to be here with all of you today. I also teach at our, our seminary, St. Cyril Methodius. I teach scripture there and I'm uh, delighted to be here with all of you and especially with our esteemed uh, panelists. We've uh, we've been on a number of projects together, so it's great to all be working on this one as well. Uh, today we'll also have uh, a wonderful guest, uh, Pawnee Katie Matlack. So for those of you that were able to participate and on the last webinar, you uh, got to meet Father Joseph Matlack, and uh, he is also the priest that is providing the lessons on the faith of the church uh, that are available on our YouTube channel. So if you've been going through those lessons, you've, uh, you've been able to hear, uh, perhaps see, I think at times, uh, Father Joseph Matlack. Uh, but today, we have his better half, uh, Pani Katie Matlack. Uh, She's also a Franciscan University grad like myself, so there are a few of us floating around. Uh, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani as well. It's another another Stuby guy, Uh, and uh, we're. uh, But she's she's here to talk a little bit about some of the work that she's done in catechesis and uh, some perspectives that she has. And we're delighted to have her. And we'll we'll be introducing her uh, shortly uh, as we go through the program. Uh, As I mentioned before, becoming Byzantine, uh, we're we're part of it's part of the Vineyard of the Lord. Catholic Ministries, but it's co-sponsored by the Byzantine Catholic Eparchy of Phoenix, which is my eparchy, uh, here on the west coast of the United States, and they graciously support us. Uh, we do, however, rely on funding from all of you for the support that you give to this work so that we're able to host and promote uh, the work that we do, and uh, we're hoping to really build a, a large repository of catechetical content that can be used in Byzantine parishes, whether it's Melkite, Romanian, Ukrainian, Ruthenian, Italo-Albanian, uh, you name it. Uh, we, we'd love to be able to create something that, that so that people can learn more about the Byzantine Catholic faith, and so uh, we do rely on your support. So uh, when you register for each week, you have the opportunity to provide a donation uh, to this work, and we're very grateful for those that have given, and I uh, would encourage you just to continue, uh, if you can, Looking for, you know, $10, $15 a month or whatever you want to give is, is very helpful uh, for, this, uh, for this body of work, which is not funded by anyone except, again, by, by your gracious donations. So, so I mentioned um, when it comes to this particular series, um, we are focusing in on Christ our Pascha, which is this wonderful catechism, this, this gift that comes to us from the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And uh, it's, uh, if, if you don't have a physical copy of it, we've provided the link to everyone to be able to access the online copy. And that gives you, uh, you know, all the wonderful resources here, this wealth uh, that comes to us in terms of the catechetical labors of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. But as you can see, um, we're from various jurisdictions. And so many have made use of this catechism um, outside of the Ukrainian uh, Catholic Church. Uh, one of our instructors will, in fact, be the English language editor for the Catechism, Father Michael Wynn, and uh, we're, we're delighted to, to have him teach the section on the worship of the Church, which will be the second section of our Catechism. So we're um, uh, we're trying to promote the use of the Catechism, its integration into our parish life and into our formation as well. Now, for us, when it comes to uh, just a quick review of what we covered last time. Um, We talked about the Eastern Catholic churches, uh, just to make sure everyone got grounded in what an Eastern Catholic church was. We said that the Catholic church founded by our Lord Jesus Christ, one holy Catholic and apostolic, uh, and there would be one faith, uh, one worship, and one leadership of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, uh, gets into, uh, you know, after the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles at Pentecost, uh, you know, the the people follow the apostles' teaching. Uh, The prayers and the breaking of the bread and uh, and the communion, the koinonia of apostolic life under the leadership of the apostles. And so every Catholic church, whether it's Eastern or Western, doesn't matter, is going to have a sharing in the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, worship, and leadership of the church established by Jesus Christ. But then as the church spread, uh, it began to take root in different cultures around Asia Minor and into Europe and beyond. And and so that that apostolic faith, worship, and leadership began to be expressed in sort of unique and diverse ways. So you had, you know, a certain unique expression of law, uh, the law of the church, this way of governing the common life, uh, worship and liturgy, the way of celebrating the same seven sacramental mysteries of the church, but emphasizing certain particular points in its, its own unique theology, its own theological expression, having its own unique theology as well. You know, so we have this wonderful encounter with God, this mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation, and it is, it is, it is expressed in a certain way according to our own artistic, liturgical, uh, theological, philosophical Um, genius, and then spirituality, our relationship with God being expressed in certain ways, so we have certain practices that develop across these different churches that make up the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, but we are, in fact, a church of churches, and 23 churches make up the Eastern Catholic Churches, so this is, again, just by way of review, a way of thinking about, you know, if we're thinking about the, the, the Catholic Church, we need to be thinking in terms of its diversity and unity, and uh, that's one of the things we like to stress, especially as, as part of our program in appreciation for our Byzantine uh, tradition. We don't presume to speak for all of the Eastern Catholic traditions, and there are many rich traditions that make up the, the Catholic Church. As I mentioned, the Syro Malabar, Syro Malankar, Maronite, uh, Armenian, Ethiopian, Coptic, uh, Chaldean. I mean, you can name a whole host of traditions. The Byzantine happens to be, it's usually the largest. And the ones that people most frequently asso- associate with the East, but in fact, it's it's just really one stream of tradition uh, in, uh, in in a many-streamed uh, church. So, just wanted to start there again, just to, to revisit that uh, that part that we covered last time, because uh, I thought it would be helpful. Uh, our discussion now moves into this uh, aspect of faith, the faith of the church, and. This particular section is going to be on Revelation of the Most Holy Trinity, and we'll have three lessons, video lessons, that Father Joseph uh, has already recorded, uh, God's Revelation, Holy Tradition, and the Holy Scriptures. These are going to be the things that we're going to, uh, going to cover. So to start us off, um, I want to Uh, Provide a quote from the Catechism, and this comes from paragraph 12. So, if you've got your catechisms, you can open up to the Catechism, turn to paragraph 12, or you can just see it there on a slide. We've made it convenient for you. Uh, Part one of the Catechism presents the contents of Christian faith in the most holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God who revealed himself to humankind and made known to it his will. The content of faith is solemnly professed by the Church in her universal proclamation of the symbol of faith and prayerfully experienced in the anaphora of the divine liturgy. Thus, part one of the catechism consisting of three sections is structured upon the explanation of the symbol of faith and the anaphora of the liturgy of St. Basil the Great. So this was covered uh, again last month, and you can see if you didn't have a chance to watch these videos, you can do so uh, by accessing our YouTube channel, Uh, but let's um, Let's go ahead and start with a, a discussion, and Father Deacon Anthony, I'd like to, to start with you if I could. Remind us again, uh, you know, why does this catechism present the faith, not just through the symbol of faith as taught by the Council Fathers of Nicaea, Constantinople, but through the Anaphora of St. Basil the Great? Now, we're probably used to hearing creeds all the time. You know, If we're in a Western tradition, <clears throat> now we have heard the Apostles' Creed. We certainly know the Creed of Nicaea, Constantinople. But this idea of using what would be in the Western context, maybe the canon of the Mass, uh, the Anaphora St. Basil. Why use the Anaphora St. Basil to help explain what what our Byzantine uh, faith is all about?
1: Great question. So the reason that's used to help explain the faith is it in it in and of itself is a narrative, in a sense, uh, going over salvation history, and that's how God worked through human history to prepare us for the coming of his son. Mm-hmm. So it's a great place to begin because it talks about how God worked through events to bring us to where we're at today. And it also kind of conveys how God can be found in those events.
0: So, so in a sense, if I can summarize, what you're saying is that it's, it's the revelation of of God in history that as it's recounted through um, through not just the symbol of faith, but also uh, the, the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. So all of the, the Eucharist mm-hmm. itself has a place in salvation history. And so it kind of creates this context for the celebration, but it makes certain references to events in, in salvation history. Is that, is that a fair, fair summary? Okay. Absolutely. So, so then what would you say would be the connection then between uh, you know the, the formative nature of worship and Christian discipleship? Because there is a mm-hmm. connection. It's not just that we worship and then we we have our life as, as Christians. That what, what's, what's the relationship between those two then?
1: Well, I, I often tell people that if you want to really learn and understand the theology of the Byzantine tradition, you learn it best by participat- participating in worship. Mm. A lot of the theology is found in our worship, uh, especially in services other than just the divine liturgy. Uh, you can find uh, some pretty amazing theological nuggets in those services. So in our tradition, the theology is conveyed primarily through the liturgy. Now, Mm. of course, we have catechisms, we have creeds, we have all of that, but the liturgy is really where it's found in its richest form. The other part of it too is this. We believe in our tradition that every time we celebrate the liturgy, every time we participate in the liturgy, we are mystically ascended to heaven in a sense. Mm-hmm. But there is a liturgy going on in heaven. We see that in the book of Revelation where, you know, angels and saints are gathered around the throne of God worshiping him. Mm-hmm. And our worship on earth plugs into that mystical worship in heaven. So in a sense every liturgy is an ascension. Mm-hmm. You know, so the belief is that when we experience this ascension, it changes us. You know, mm-hmm. we go up there in a sense, we're mystically ascended, and when we come back down to earth, we're a little bit different. And we grow from that. So, you know, the worship plays a key role here as a place where we learn the teachings of the church, the doctrine passed on from the apostles, but it's also an experience that changes us and helps us to be uh, new people, to live truly as disciples of Christ.
0: Yeah, so no, no one should leave liturgy unchanged. Uh, yes. every, we should always leave liturgy uh, growing in theosis, this, this idea of uh, in the divine life and the likeness of God. So that when we leave, uh, there's that phrase, the liturgy after the liturgy, uh, we're able to really then live out our priestly dignity as as part of the royal priesthood of the baptized. Uh, mm-hmm. That's you know, it's kind of the the image of the the fathers use, and certainly the uh, council fathers, the Second Vatican Council, the summit. You know, the Eucharistic summit. Now we've we've been to the mountaintop. Now we got to come down. <laughs> You know, actually, try to live out this Christian this Christian existence and transform the world, eucharistically. So, uh, absolutely. So, so thank you, uh, Father Deacon. So, so Robert, uh, you know, one of one of I know we're both fans of Archbishop Joseph Ryan. Uh, he wrote a wonderful book called "The Face of God," uh, which, if if you haven't, if if those who are listening or watching have not seen or read that book before, highly recommend it. One of the things he he points out in his essays on Byzantine Christian spirituality uh, is that for Christians, when it comes to our belief in God, our faith in God, we don't just believe in some generic deity. Uh, you know, it's not like we believe in this this God essence that's out there and uh, in, in kind of almost faceless deity, but rather the God who is Trinity, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, and that this makes us different from both Jews and Muslims, who also profess uh, a monotheistic faith, a faith in one God as the creator, uh, as well as the Hindus, who profess polytheism, a belief in, in many deities, or pantheists who believe that all of creation is uh, is divine. What are some of the ways that you think the symbol of faith and the divine liturgy really emphasize our Trinitarian faith? What would you, what would yeah. you say?
2: Yeah, uh, that's essentially important, the revelation of God as a blessed trinity, um, that God reveals himself in scripture as a communion of persons, right? That means God becomes intimate and personal with his creation, and we see this especially with the incarnation. God takes on human flesh, God with us, right? Um, Takes on human flesh and becomes that innocent child in in the babe, you know, the, the babe in the in the manger at Bethlehem and then lives his life and goes through all the human stuff that we go through. He wades through all of that and takes it to the cross. And it's at the cross that he be, you know, that he puts to puts death to death. Right. And then rises to new life. That's really personal, right? That's not that remote deity that we, we don't, you know, we cower behind, you know, cower down, you know, this is a God that had a human face. That became one of us. And so in our worship, um, we express that intimacy, right? Um, everything in a, in a Byzantine divine liturgy is done in the name of the Blessed Trinity. Um, you know, it's not just a reference. It's not just a beginning point and an end. We're saying, you know, glory to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit, now and ever and not to ages of ages, throughout the liturgy. Everything is Trinitarian. And it's precisely to make that point that God is with us. Right He's not just with us in the in the past, he's with us now, and especially in and through the Eucharist, that intimacy that we have with Christ in and through the Eucharist, and offering the worship to the father
0: yeah and, and even uh, you know, even though certain prayers, and I've become more conscientious about this now, especially uh, being a priest for a little over a year now as i've as I've said the prayers of the liturgy. Um, there are certain prayers that are addressed to the Father and certain prayers that are addressed to the Son, but they all have a conclusion that it, it makes sure there's reference to the Holy Trinity so that you, you, you don't understand the Father apart from the Son and the Spirit or the Son apart from the Father and the Spirit. Uh, there, are, there are prayers so that we understand that you know, we are entering into communion with one God and three divine persons and in fact, the beginning of the liturgy: "Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son." You know, and, and I'm taking the the gospel book and making the cross, uh, you know, over the uh, over the antimension on the holy table. We begin in the name of the Trinity, and and that's also you know where where we conclude as well. So, so one of the things too, a frequent symbol that's that uh, that we think about. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here, as it as it pertains to. The uh, the Trinity is the Tricurian and the decurian So all deacons and subdeacons know these <laughs> these two candlesticks very well, uh, the Tricurian and Decurian. And and here you can see uh, Patriarch uh, Sviatoslav uh, Shevchuk of the um, uh, of the Ukrainians holding these two candlesticks. Now the uh, you know whenever a bishop visits a parish, uh, he uses these candlesticks to bless the vineyard of the Lord, you know, and that's one of the things we call this apostle, the vineyard Lord Catholic Ministries. He's there to bless the vineyard of the Lord. The, uh, the trikiri is a three-branched, uh, candlestick, and it symbolizes, no surprise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, right? One God, one, one, uh, these three long candles representing the three persons held together in one signifying, uh, the one true God. Uh, but then we have the decurion or decuri. Uh, these, this is the two branch candlesticks. These signify the two natures of Jesus Christ united into his, or united with his divine person. Uh, so one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. And so the bishop in blessing the vineyard of the Lord, blessing the church, is really blessing them in the name of God, the Holy Trinity, and also in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, the true God and true man. And these really form two of the central mysteries that make what we believe as Christians different from everything, every every other religion, religion in the world, right? Uh, this is this is what distinguishes us. Um, so so let me ask you Father Deacon Anthony uh, our, this question. You know, why are these mysteries so central to our profession of faith as Christians? Why are they why are they so central to us? Okay,
1: so the Trinity, of course, is a revelation of who God is. You know, God is a community of love. You know, it says in, the, in, the, in the, uh, one of the epistles of John that God is love, and people often misunderstand that to mean that, oh, God's like a, you know, a loving emotion or whatnot. No, it means that God actually is a relationship of love between three persons. And our salvation comes from us being plugged into that relationship of love. We become, a, you know, a part of it in a sense. Uh, So that's crucial for our salvation. The second one, of course, the uh, incarnation, that Jesus is both God and man, both human and divine, is also essential to our salvation. Because after Adam and Eve left the garden, there was a gulf between humans and God, right? There was a separation between us and, and God. But when God became one of us, when God the Son took on human form and became one of us, he bridged that gap. He made it possible for humans and God to once again be together uh, by taking on our nature and being one of us. So it's crucial that we understand the you know the trinitary nature of God, that relationship of love, but also that God truly became a human being and dwelt among us. And if he didn't, if he was just, you know, a phantom or an illusion, we wouldn't be, be experiencing salvation.
0: Yes. And, and in fact, this is why when we begin. In the liturgy, be, blessed is the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What is the kingdom of God? But it's the holy reign of a holy God in the midst of His whole of a holy people. This is what Emmanuel means. It's God in the midst of us, reigning and governing, and and that's exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ did uh, in establishing uh, the, the kingdom of the Holy Trinity. And, uh, and reconciling us to God, he established that, that kingdom. So this is why we refer to him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and, and all the, the titles we give him. Uh, so, so one of the things we do in the liturgy very frequently to kind of honor these, these two mysteries beyond just the candles, uh, we also make the sign of the cross frequently. Um, why don't you say a little bit about that? Why, why, why do we make the sign of the cross? And uh, when do we do it in the divine liturgy?
1: Okay, so why do we make it? Well, it's a reminder of this Trinitarian uh, relationship of salvation. And the way we do it, of course, in our Byzantine tradition is a little different in the sense that in the Western church, they tend to use an open hand, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We always do it with these three fingers together to show the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But also, these two fingers are down, and that represents the humanity and divinity of Christ. You know so every time we're doing that,'re we reminding ourselves of those two essential mysteries, you know the Trinity and the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. God is three, and Jesus is both God and man. Right. Uh, so it's a reminder, it's a reminder, but also we do it in the liturgy there's no easy answer to that because it's done so many different ways. In general, anytime the Trinity is mentioned or in, evoked in some way invoked in some way, uh, we will cross ourselves. But the reality is people do the sign of the cross a lot during liturgy. Oftentimes, whenever they feel like it, you know, whenever something happens that they feel is special, and there's a lot of that, Mm -hmm. depending on how you approach this, in some parishes, people might cross themselves a hundred times during liturgy. Mm -hmm. That's not an exaggeration. Other places, people cross themselves a lot less. But the general rule is anytime the Trinity is invoked, more often than not, people will cross themselves.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know the, the thing that's interesting about that is there's it's it's really a a, a profession of faith, right? It's it's uh, in a sense mm-hmm. it summarizes what's in the creed. That the whole creed is summarized in, in the making of of the sign of the cross. Uh, so you have the, the the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, uh, and there's also a reference to our baptism. Some people may not know mm-hmm. the connection between uh, the sign of the cross and and holy baptism. Do you do you have any insight there uh, that that would be helpful to, to think about?
1: So we're always baptized in the name of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus said to go forth and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So every baptism is is a trinitarian baptism. Uh, and again, it's plugging you into that mystery of the of the love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, it joins us into that relationship. So because the baptism itself is a trinitarian experience whenever we make the sign of the cross, you know, and evoke Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, that's reminding us of our baptism as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and originally the sign of the cross, uh, you know, made over the, the catechumens or those who were being initiated, uh, you know, uh, on the forehead, this this really was the original sign of the cross that, that yes. Christians would make as a renewal of their, of their baptismal commitment to, uh, to Christ. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it, it, it sort of began to you know do on the lips and on the heart and you see that sometimes in the Roman mass you know where they they kind of anoint the the forehead you know which is kind of the the entryway the doorway uh, into the into the mind uh, the, the lips you know to speak praises to God the heart where the Trinity dwells and eventually they started making the sign of the cross uh, and eventually you'll see people sometimes they'll go all the way down to the floor and then make the sign of the cross now now we make the sign of the cross, uh, from, from right to left, what, what's the significance of that? What do we, I I know there's different teachings on that, but what, Mm. what would you say is the significance of that?
1: In in general, um, we see this in scripture and also in history, the right is considered to be the, how should I put It's the favored side, right? You know, Mm. Christ sits at the right hand of the father Mm-hmm. Um, you know, historically, for whatever reason, the, the right was seen as, as the honored side. Unfortunately, there's some discrimination against left-handed people on this. Uh, <laughs> but historically, that was the case. Right. So going from right to left uh, makes sense when you consider that historical framework, that historical background, and also, you know, the idea of the, of the son being seated at the right hand of the father. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I've also heard, too, like, uh, that the, the Trinity – the, the, the indwelling of God is in, the, is, in the, is in our heart. I mean, obviously not our physical heart, but that this is one of the reasons why we would sometimes land on the heart. There's, there's different ways of teaching, you know, the, explaining that, but it's also one of the first things that kids learn too, uh, very early on about their faith. You see, it's, it's so great to look out and see these, see these little children. And Robert, I imagine you uh, also uh, is, have, in, in teaching your kids and, and certainly Father Deacon Anthony, yours as well, uh, you know, tr- trying to get the, the hand right, you know, trying to, and then, and then make the sign of the cross. And, uh, you know, it's, it's gotta be something that helps to reinforce their identity as, as, uh, as Catholic Christians, especially, but, uh, but Byzantine Catholics. So, so, all right. So let's just summarize this real fast here. So, so we've talked about um, the apostolic faith of the church. It's not just in a generic deity. We actually believe in God who is Holy Trinity Uh, The second person of the Trinity made flesh for our salvation. Uh, Emmanuel became man without losing any of his divinity. So, you know, and that we always at Ascension Thursday, there's no Ascension Sunday, folks. Ascension Thursday, uh, when we celebrate that great mystery, uh, it's not like our Lord took his humanity and said, done with that. Take that off. Now I'm free to go back to the right hand. No, he took that humanity with him. Uh, and ascended to the throne of his father as a great high priest and king, and, uh, and so he is fully God, fully man, remaining such, uh, and our church celebrates then these two great mysteries, Trinity and Incarnation. Uh, these, are, these are both the central mysteries of our faith. It's, it's part of our baptismal faith. It's part of our liturgical faith, our Eucharistic faith. It comes in the blessing of the bishop, the making of the sign of the cross, the profession of faith, Uh, All these are examples of ways that we honor these two central mysteries uh, of our faith. So, is that a fair summary? Any anything you would add, uh, Robert or Father Deacon? I think that covers it pretty well. Okay, good. Well, then we're done. (laughs) So let's let's then uh, as we continue uh, this, uh, we want to give folks a a chance to ask some questions. Tell you what, we're going we're gonna to give it a few few minutes, and uh, for people who have questions to ask, you can populate those in the Q&A feature on the Zoom control panel. Um, let's, let's then go to the next question, which has to do with revelation. So that's really the focus of this. So we're talking about the revelation of the Holy Trinity. And the Catechism, again, Christ Pasca has this to say in paragraph 13. Revelation of the Most Holy Trinity in section 1 presents the contents and the revelation of God, the Creator, the Almighty Ruler, or Pantocrator. You see an example of that iconographically represented on the on the right-hand side uh, of the universe. This revelation is contained within holy tradition and the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and entrusted to the Holy Church, which announces, interprets, and authoritatively teaches it. Uh, the church encourages everyone to come to the knowledge of God that by reading and listening to the word of God, they may live by it daily. As a seed planted in good soil, the word of God grows within us, illuminating and leading us into the mystical depth of God's life. So it's a, it's a beautiful beautiful paragraph here, uh, lots to unpack. So, so Robert, let's start with you on this point. Um, Mention made is made here in this paragraph of revelation. What do we mean by the revelation of God, and why is it important for us when we talk about the apostolic faith of the church?
2: Yeah, well, first, by revelation, revelation is a appealing back, right? So, in terms of God, it's appealing back of the mystery of God. God makes Himself known to us in order that we might know Him, and the purpose of our knowing God. Is to love God, right? God, throughout sacred scripture, He's looking for relationship. He's looking for covenant, right? Um, you can't enter into a relationship with someone that you don't know. So God has to reveal Himself in order for us to come into covenant communion with Him, and then that climax is at uh, the incarnation. God becomes man. He becomes one of us. And he reveals the father, right? Christ, the image of the invisible God. And we see the depths of God's love for us on the cross,
0: right? And then that promise of new life through his resurrection. So, so why do we need re- divine revelation? Why, why is that important for us as Christians? So that we can come into right relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, God
2: desires our heart, right? He desires that love response back to him. You know, Father Deacon Anthony was talking, God is a a communion of love, right? And so he wants us to participate in that. Well, we can only do that if we know God, right? And see the depth of how much he loves us, not just in the act of creation, but in the act of redemption. And then we respond with love back to God, right? That's our, our life in the church. It starts with baptism right but then it grows every every time we pray every time we participate especially in the holy eucharist right we're we're participating in that communion of love with god through that
0: process of theosis mm-hmm. so so then when we think about christianity uh you know some people like to treat it like well it's, it's a, like a philosophical system of, of sorts when in fact it is it's really the vehicle uh, embodied in the church for the revelation of god to the word of god as we call it to come to come into the world so so could uh could there be any christianity without divine revelation nope next question okay (laughs) we settled (laughs) that
2: no no i mean we, we we absolutely need divine revelation um without it i mean we might come to some knowledge of okay i didn't create myself therefore There must be some kind of God, a powerful God who created me. But that doesn't call me to love that God. That might call on me to offer some kind of sacrifice out of fear, right? That's those ancient pagan religions which operated on on fear, really. I don't want God to smite me. Um, You can't love someone who's a threat, Mm -hmm. right? You love someone because they've responded. We love God because
0: he loved us first. And right. we encounter that first through divine revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so God in revealing Himself, and I think the Catechism does a very good job presenting this. He does so so that we can then be in communion with His yeah. His life and love, uh, because you can't love what you don't know. If I if I could summarize kind uh-huh. of thing here, yep. and uh, and so the Church being entrusted with this. Becomes the 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 vessel of 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 the Word of God, a a true sacrament of salvation uh, by by presenting revelation to the world. So so, what does this say about about the 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 claims of the Catholic Church uh, when it comes to faith, uh, when it comes to uh, to to what it presents in terms, what it announces, the gospel? uh, You know, it's a herald of the gospel to the world. What does it say about its own divine claims?
2: Well, I, I think you touched on it, that that Christ comes and he reveals the love of the Father towards all creation, right? He calls us into that covenant communion with him, and he founds a church, right? That's not something extra. That's part of the message, right? He founds the church as this community of love to which he entrusts the gospel, and he sends his apostles out to baptize in the name of the Trinity, and to extend that communion right so that communion is extended in and through the church that revelation of god right that canon of scripture comes through the sacred tradition that's the church that puts the bible together mm-hmm. right so we're entrusted with that so why would people trust the catholic church because christ founded it mm. right christ entrusted that gospel to his apostles and their successors mm-hmm. and so if we're looking for well where's the truth of the revelation of god it lies in the institution that christ himself founded
0: i think it's interesting too that the the profession of faith in the church that christ founded is part of the symbol of faith of, of yeah. the, the creed of nicaea constantinople um Certainly, we're professing faith in the Holy Trinity, in the incarnation of the Son, the, the central mysteries surrounding that event, uh, his, uh, you know, his advent and then his return. But, you know, I, be- I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, there is, there is a profession of faith, which to me says that the church was part of the divine plan all along. Uh, there's not this sort of Jesus and me uh, or God and me relationship. That my relationship with God somehow mysteriously is the church, and uh, that that says a lot about what our vocation is uh, and what we're called to to, to be. I think as um, as as a people, certainly, and and the and the claims made by the church in terms mm-hmm. of revelation. So, well, Father Deacon Anthony, um, you know, let, let's talk about this this idea of God's God's word uh, being revealed to us. It, the catechism says that God's word is revealed to us in creation and in history. Mm-hmm. So, so what does it mean by the word of God being revealed in these ways? I mean, how, can, how is that reflected, too, in our faith as Byzantine Christians?
1: Sure. So first of all, in, in creation, right? It says, uh, well, there's, a, there's an old saying that God the Father created the world through the Son in the Holy Spirit. So all three persons of the Trinity were involved in creation and the son of course, you know, took a very active role, a hands-on role in a sense, in the creation of all things. Right. So because all of creation was made by God and all creation, uh, you know, was made through the Trinity, mm-hmm. there's kind of an imprint of God throughout all of creation. Mm. Now it's not necessarily obvious, right? You know, you you can't just look at a sunset and say, ah, I see proof of the Trinity. Yeah. It doesn't work like that, but there is, there is the fingerprints of God throughout all of creation. You know, the designer can be kind of discerned to a certain extent in what he designed and what he created. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that say about us in worship? Oh, also salvation history, of course, that goes back to what we said about the anaphora of St. Basil, the great, you know, that, that God was working through the, uh, what they call the economy of salvation the Mm -hmm. divine economy uh, to prepare us for the coming of the sun. And again, we see that uh, taking place simultaneously in a sense with, with creation unfolding. I mean, creation is still in a sense, being renewed and, and unfolding before us. We're still a part of that whole process in a sense. So what does it say about us and our worship? Well, here's a key thing. In our Byzantine tradition, we believe that matter, the physical world, is good. Mm-hmm. You know, creation is good because God made it. And that's reflected in how we worship. You know, We use a lot of material things in our worship, You know, things like bread, wine, water, oil. Creation, created things are a part of how we worship because we believe that creation is good. Because it, in a sense, uh, reflects the creator. One way of looking at it is that creation, here's one expression I've heard before that creation is a visible icon of an invisible God. Mm. And of course that's leading towards fulfillment mm. in the coming of Jesus, who very much is God. He's more than an icon. He actually is God in creation you know, he becomes one of his creatures in a sense. Yeah. Um, so we see all of that reflected in how we worship.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and you know there is uh, there's this wonderful phrase of um, uh, Saint Irenaeus of Leon in the in the second century who who said they um, uh, he said that the, the God the Father was the the architect, uh, God the Son was the master builder, and uh, God the Spirit was uh, the one who gave life and growth to creation. So I love I love mm-hmm. what you're saying there, and I know the Catechism emphasizes this that. Creation itself, even though we say, you know, God the Father, Creator of heaven and earth, uh, it was it was really the Holy Trinity involved, and and the the Trinity had made its imprint on all of created being, and we see this just as there is unity and diversity in God. There's there is in a sense, an analogous sense, unity and diversity in creation, um, but it also has a it also imprints a divine purpose, I think, on, on created being that we have an orientation to the kingdom of God. So when we think about blessed is the kingdom of the Holy Trinity in the, in the divine liturgy, we begin there. All of creation is being brought forward through, through the royal priesthood of Christ, uh, through the church, being offered back through the divine son. Uh, and his high priesthood uh, back to the father. That seems to be like the whole purpose of, of salvation history to offer creation back, uh, back to God. Absolutely. So, so then, so, so we, we talk about then God's word being create revealed in creation. I sometimes think too about like idolatry, you know, mm. I, I, you know, this is always a problem in the old Testament, you know, dealing with the, uh, the issues of idolatry, idolatry, you know, if we can see God's imprint in creation, Idolatry is really like a form of short sightedness, right? Because creation is meant to point to God, and you know you can see if uh, I live in the you know the Pacific Northwest, we see these glorious volcanoes and mountains and trees, and you could see how those who don't have the full revelation of God might be inclined or tempted to worship these created beings because there's a majesty there, there's a glory that's reflected. Uh, it's the divine artist that they can perceive, but they but instead, they, they worship the creature rather than, rather than the, the creator. It's, but but that's, that's a temptation that's more than just with, you know, uh, indigenous people, right? I mean, isn't there a certain sense in which all of us are tempted to idolatry, would you say?
1: Oh, yeah, certainly. Uh, again, creation points back to the creator, <clears throat> but creation is good. Mm-hmm. And because it's good, it oftentimes, you know, does good things for us. The problem is when we take these good things and see them as an end in and of themselves mm-hmm. and ignore what they're leading us towards. The other part of idolatry as well is when we take you know, these good things in creation and then we kind of misuse them in a sense, right? So things that were made and created good, they're good, but we can take them and we can try and use them, for example, to fill an emotional or a spiritual void, Right. When we do that, we're kind of going against their intended purpose, and it kind of steers us away from God. So, yeah, I can understand the temptation, and I can see where it comes from, especially if you don't have divine revelation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so then, so then, talk about God's word in history. Then uh, we call it salvation history sometimes. But what 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 do we mean, what does the catechism mean when it talks about God's word in, being revealed in history? So uh, here's another way of looking at this. All of creation
1: was meant to be a temple. Mm. It was meant to be a temple, you know, to God, specifically God, the son. So it took some time to make this temple and to prepare it for the coming of the son. So we see, for example, in the book of Genesis, you know, God spends six days Mm -hmm. making the world, right? So six days preparing it initially, but then it needs more time to prepare this temple for the coming of the Son, And that's really the whole story of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. God preparing the temple, preparing creation, preparing us. All the stuff he does, you know, in, in salvation history is leading up to the coming of his son. But we have to be ready for it. And the world has to be ready for it. Creation has to be ready for it. So it's all about preparation. That's the key thing. God preparing creation for its ultimate purpose, being a temple to the sun.
0: Absolutely. Anyway, I think that's-
2: right. Oh, good. We got the recording. Wonderful. Excellent. God, God is good. But yes, when the priest blesses, he blesses from left to right. And then the people respond with that mirror image, right? So it's um, kind of that reflection of, you know, of course, the, the priest is conveying Christ's blessing right? In the East, the, there's a the beautiful tradition of the priest holding his hand to spell out the letters Jesus Christ, right? That Christogram. So mm-hmm. it's, it's Christ who blesses, and the people respond in kind. Um, so it's a b- beautiful and powerful image um, that we still maintain, that we have in, in the East. And that's, it connects very, very beautifully to that, that the blessing that you're receiving from Christ, And kind of making it your own when you make the sign of the cross. Give that response.
1: One question that comes up related to this sometimes is is which came first, the Western or the Eastern way, right? Mm. Well, the reality is what came first was the uh, sign of the cross with the thumb on the forehead. Mm. That was the original way it was done. Um, And it appears based upon in historical documents that it was done from right to left. Um, Later on, of course, as Father Daniel mentioned... It became, you know, the whole hand involved mm. like this. And interestingly enough, uh, it appears, again, based on historical records, that the Western Church, uh, you know the Latin tradition, also did the sign of the cross with the fingers like this, from right to left, well into the Middle Ages. And at some point in time, it moved to an open hand and from mm. left to right. But the history in all this is extremely murky. Uh, no one's sure exactly why it changed, and again, the assertion that the that the earlier way is from right to left is again based on what documents we have available. But even then, there's a little murkiness as to what the original way was. So, you know, when it comes to liturgical history and liturgical evolution, a lot of guessing is involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is pretty well established that well into the medieval period. The Western Church was doing the sign of the cross almost exactly like we do it in the Byzantine tradition today.
2: Well, we had Father Daniel, and there he is. Welcome back, back, Father Daniel. Welcome back.
0: I had to (laughs) I had to leave the uh, the parish office and go to the rectory to uh, to do this. I don't know what was going on with my Wi Fi. I apologize for that, but thank you Uh, for persevering. Sounds like you're answering some interesting questions.
1: And the recording, I guess, picked up right where it was. Is that correct? It wouldn't like restart or anything, would it?
0: I, I don't know. It says it's recording right now. So um, Bianca, it stopped are you, right? you left? I'm recording. Oh, she's recording. Great. So we'll just combine the two and, and turn them into a video. So it, it'll just look like I just transported to a, to <laughs> yeah. another uh, location.
1: Do some <laughs> nice editing, make it look. Uh, that's
0: right. Now, did you guys do a giveaway for the uh, Becoming Byzantine?
3: Yes, we did. Oh, a we giveaway, did. And there's a couple
0: of Q&As waiting as well. Okay, good. Well, we'll keep going with the Q and A, uh, and then we'll and then we'll pick up where we left off. Well, Is there uh, another,
1: the, yeah, another question was you mentioned that there were were twenty three Eastern Catholic churches. How many Western Catholic churches are there? Hmm. You want to go for that one, Robert?
2: Well, uh, as far as I know, there's one. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> there's one. That's just just the Roman Catholic Church. Um, now. There used to be more um, that would fall under kind of a, a Western umbrella, um, the rite that was celebrated at Milan, the, the Milanese rite, the rite of Lyon in France. You know, there are these historic expressions of Western Christianity, um, but then that all by the time of the Council of Trent, at least as my understanding goes, all got whittled down to kind of one expression of Western Christianity. So there's just, just the one.
1: Then the last question is perfectly suited for you, Father Daniel.
0: What is, what is the last question there? Uh,
1: can you show us how the priest holds his hand for blessing and explain?
0: Oh, yes. So, yeah, so um, the priest holds his hand like this, I can put it up right there, uh, and uh, this is what's called the Christogram. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the icon of the Annunciation, which is the feast that we celebrate on March 25th, which is where the Archangel Gabriel appeared to the, the most holy mother of God in Nazareth. And at that moment, he comes announcing uh, to her the good news uh, that, uh, that, that uh, God is inviting her to become the mother of God, the birth giver of God. And so he announces in a sense that the, the, the name of, of Jesus Christ and so as he's standing there, as he's actually kind of running in, he's usually his posture is like he's running into the, the home of Nazareth, he comes holding a staff and uh, and also his hand like this. And what this is, it's the first and last letters of the name Jesus Christ in Greek, I-C-X-C. So usually we you see an icon, like you'll see an icon uh, above the left-hand shoulder of Father Deacon Anthony there. Of Christ, usually on that icon you'll see I C X C, and that that basically is the is uh, an abbreviation for the name Jesus Christ. It is also announced in the blessing of the priest I C X C. So I C X C in the hand of the priest. So when he's blessing, he's he's quite literally blessing in the name of the Lord, just as Archangel Gabriel comes announcing uh, the name of the Lord. So that's, that is what, (laughs) excuse me, that is called a Christogram. And that's what, uh, the blessing or the, the hands of the priest means in, in that. So hopefully that was helpful. Great question. All right. So, so let's, uh, let's continue our conversation then. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pull up the, uh, PowerPoint again, hopefully the universe won't collapse at that moment. And, uh, so let's go back to the catechism. So, so we've been talking about these two central mysteries of the Trinity and of, um, of uh, the incarnation of the Son, the Son of God, God's revelation being for uh, the purpose of inviting us into a common life and in communion of life and love with the Holy Trinity, uh, that our faith is really based on revelation And so the catechism says, the summit of God's revelation is the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate of the Holy Spirit, the Virgin Mary. In his words and deeds, he revealed the love of God the Father, the apostles, Christ's disciples, received the word of God and proclaim the good news about him to the whole world. They witnessed to Christ by the word of their preaching and by the example of their lives. The mission of the apostles was taken up by their successors, the Holy Fathers of the church who preserved and safeguarded the unbroken continuity of apostolic tradition by means of the Episcopal succession down to our times. Always a lot there. A lot of, a lot of important things to, uh, uh to, to then consider. So, so if we consider then the Lord Jesus Christ, the revelation of the word, uh, of God, the word becoming flesh in history, we we'll call salvation history. Uh, this, this moment of the annunciation where he takes flesh, uh, it, it's the embodiment of revelation, the full revelation of the father in the son. Uh, and then he commissions his apostles 33 years later, uh, at the ascension, uh, where he is, he is ascending into glory. Which we see represented in this icon to go forth and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, teaching them all that he has commanded them, and that he is with them uh, always into the end of the ages. So this this is a very important commissioning that takes place. Uh, but but it all goes back to that initial revelation in the Annunciation. So so Robert, talk to talk to us about this revelation in the Annunciation. What does it mean? that uh that god became flesh that he he became incarnate uh by the holy spirit and the blessed virgin mary
2: gosh uh, i don't think we have enough time (laughs) um now there's a beautiful um this morning at, at Orthros at morning prayer i believe the gospel that we used was that that section in john where he says If all the things about Jesus could possibly be written, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to hold the books, right? Um, Gosh, every theology book I have, and this is my small office, um, has the central pivot is the incarnation. Um, It changed everything. It's enormous. Um, It is one of the, you know, outside of the the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, um, the doctrine of the incarnation is the central doctrine of our faith. Um, The fact that God became one of us, right? He entered into our humanity. He took on our human nature, right? He took on flesh, um, that Christ in his flesh suffered, Um, all of that. And, And really, that revelation of Christ, God becoming man, also reveals that's a mirror that we hold up to ourselves, right? Now we have an example to follow right and and not only an example to follow but the grace through the cross and resurrection to actually follow after Christ right which was the problem in the old testament right they had the law and the law kind of you know kept bounced them back and forth they couldn't quite keep the law ever perfectly right it, it wasn't they didn't have that grace they didn't have that obstacle between god and man removed so Christ bridges that gap in his incarnation and then removes that that stumbling block of sin and death through the cross and resurrection in order to give us that grace and to invite us into that divine life of God. And so now we have that path. We have um, the way, the truth, and the life to follow. Um, And that's our Christian walk. That's our process of theosis and, and that living out of our baptismal call. So the Incarnation is huge it's it's where it, it starts that beautiful,
0: beautiful act of god's redemption of the whole cosmos and and I love the connection you make to the resurrection Gospel from orthros uh, this morning i you know this there are so many things that he did uh, and said that the, the whole all the books of the world could not con- yeah. contain them uh, and and yet we have words of de- words and deeds of Jesus being communicated. Uh, to us especially in the four gospels um also in the acts of the apostles there are a few references there to uh to some of his words and deeds um why is that important to us why why do we care about the words and deeds of jesus uh and uh why would um why would he, our lord commission his apostles to basically pass those on uh to the nations right well
2: it, it's It's wonderful and beautiful in the incarnation itself. God takes on human flesh. But if that's all he did, we would have missed the message, Mm. right? Christ needed to do and say things Mm -hmm. um, because that's part of being fully human, Mm -hmm. right? And so we connect with the words of Christ. We connect with the actions of Christ. It's how we have that full picture of how deep the love of God is for us, right and so that's why the church loves especially the gospels right mm-hmm. that that written record of all that christ said well not all because of course there wouldn't be enough room in the world for the books but those essential things those those things pertaining directly to our salvation are written down there in those four gospels and then kind of um, theologized and communicated to the various Christian communities through the writings of Saint Paul and Acts of the Apostles and things like that. So, so we we needed that revelation. We needed the words of Christ and we needed the actions of Christ as well, really, in order to get that full picture of how deeply God loves us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in, in that sense, the Gospels really kind of form the what was for Israel the Torah of Moses. You know, being the, the sort of the central canon within yeah. the canon, the Gospels, in that sense, really represent that the the canon within the canon of the New Testament. They're, right. they're such a pivotal part, and so just as uh, the, uh, the the faithful Jews would venerate the Torah of Moses, we venerate the Gospels That's right. of the New Testament, sort of representing the new law uh, revealed by a new Moses, who also happens to be the Lord. <laughs> Yeah. Uh and and in fact he is the Torah that we follow. He is the he is the new law that we follow. So the gospel right. has such an important part uh in in our life even though we we don't um you know they're part of a, a broader canon of scripture uh that we honor and venerate. Uh, Father mm-hmm. deacon Anthony, what would you say is the um then if we think about our our faith being apostolic and the commission that the apostles were given what what why is that so what why is that so foundational for us uh as as believers in the church in terms of the witness that they're giving? Like like Acts 242, you know, why were the Christians so concerned after Pentecost to pay attention to what the apostles taught, how they worshiped, and uh to be under their shepherding and leadership?
1: Mm-hmm. So when Christ ascended into heaven, he did not leave us, you know lost on earth as orphans. He wanted to make sure we had a teacher and a guide. So he established a church, right? We see that in the scriptures. Christ says, you're Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. This church we know is the pillar and foundation of truth, you know, as Paul says in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So if we didn't have a a church to lead us and guide us, we'd be kind of lost. We wouldn't know where to go, what to do. Uh, And people can say, well, you can look at scripture alone. It's all right there in scripture. Scripture could be interpreted in thousands and thousands of different ways. Right. Uh, really, it can. Mm-hmm. There are literally thousands of different Christian denominations, each one claiming they're interpreting it correctly. Right. So he left us a church, and the apostles really are the foundation of that church. You know, these are people who knew Christ, who were taught by Christ, and they were taught many things that weren't necessarily written down. Hmm. And then likewise, they received a special you know, charism of leadership. Yeah. Uh, so they could pass on this truth. And then of course, the apostles chose bishops to be their successors. Right. And this is important. You know, one thing people don't often realize is that early on the new Testament as we have, it didn't exist.
3: Yeah. They didn't
1: come until later. So what was relied upon was the traditions passed on from the mm-hmm. apostles from generation to generation.
3: Mm-hmm. And there
1: was a, there were rival groups out there claiming Jesus for themselves Uh, the Gnostics. You've probably heard of the Gnostics. I know you guys have, but other people probably have as well. You know, the Gnostics had some strange beliefs. Hmm. They claimed to have special knowledge. You know, gnosis means knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the the Gnostics claimed that Jesus was one of theirs, Mm -hmm. one of their people. And they have all these different Gnostic Gospels. People probably hear about, all the lost Gospels that were hidden by the church. Well, very often these were Gnostic texts, that did weird things with jesus like in one of them you know jesus says that only a man can be saved a woman can never be saved and then somebody asks him oh what about mary magdalene he says don't worry about her i'll turn her into into a man strange strange stuff the gnostics claimed that jesus was one of theirs but the christians could do something the gnostics couldn't Mm. they could show that they had bishops with the laying on of hands going back to the apostles. They had this yeah. you know, chain of succession going back to the apostles. And for them, this was an important sign that they were authentically passing on Jesus's teachings because they had a direct connection to Jesus. Other groups who claimed Jesus for themselves could never do that.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, I, I remember reading a passage from uh, St. I think St. Irenaeus, who talks about how the Gnostics... He he. Going back to that thing we talked about last time about the, the Catholic Church being, you know, like a mosaic icon and all these different little pieces that that uh, he he uses that as a as a an analogy for uh, the the apostolic faith uh, and uh, and and the tradition and the passages of Scripture and he says so the Gnostics will take this and they'll put these pieces together of scripture passages and so forth and they'll say and they'll make an image of a frog and say look this is jesus or they'll take it and put the pieces together and say it's a cow and they say oh that's jesus and he's like no you need to rely on this apostolic tradition that should guide you this holy tradition to put all the pieces together in the right way to reveal the true face of Christ—not a frog, not a cow, not a cat—but but the true face of Christ. I always thought that was such a, a great way to think about this idea of holy tradition because mm-hmm. that is also an important part of the revelation of the Word of God. So God comes through, reveals Himself through creation, through salvation history, but also through holy tradition. Can you say a little bit more about that, Father Deacon? Uh, sure.
1: So, you know, holy tradition. And first of all, what is holy tradition, right? I think the best definition of it would probably be uh, important truths revealed by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. They've been passed on. Uh, in, in some cases, they may have been written in some form. In some cases, they may not have been, mm-hmm. but they were passed on. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were passed on through the church, you know, through the, from the apostles to the bishops, from generation to generation, and these are, are crucial things, you know, things like belief in the Trinity, you know, the God is three at one, uh, the incarnation. So many of the key things that we believe were initially passed on through holy tradition. But mm-hmm. even then, you know, they're in scripture, but they're not always necessarily clearly, you know, explained in scripture to the extent that they're explained in holy tradition.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, holy tradition would be reflected, say, in the teachings of the, of the church fathers, uh, per se. Like, I know that there is this understanding that, you know, where there is this consensus, even among the, the fathers of the church, where they teach with a, a unified voice, you know, the church regards that as, uh, as a way of confirming that, in fact, this is divine teaching uh, because these were the students of the apostles or sometimes the students of the students of the apostles or all the way back there was this through so through the episcopal uh charism but also through the uh those who had received this patrimony which we call the church fathers we're hearing the living voice of the word of god being communicated through oral tradition but also in the liturgy and so forth and that's that's an important part of our faith absolutely so, so, Robert, let's talk then about the, the, uh, the other part of the, the word of God, uh, which is the written. So it's not just, you know, the, the, the words and deeds of Jesus and the apostles, the words and deeds of the apostles, because that's also part of the revelation, uh, communicated uh, verbally or through, uh, through these, the sacred tradition. It's also the written word of God in the scriptures. So what do we mean when we talk about the sacred scriptures uh, or the Holy Bible? Right.
2: So the sacred scripture is the written word of God, of course, you know, is the patrimony of our our Jewish forefathers. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, We get the Old Testament, the the Pentateuch and and all of the Old Testament writings that come down from that tradition. Um, You know, the great Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, um, all passed down. And when in the New Testament, when they talk about the scripture, when the church talks about the scripture, they're talking about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. right so that all that patrimony comes down to us from those Jewish roots right mm-hmm. um, and then the New Testament you know is being uh, written by the various gospel writers uh, the first one to, you know St. Paul all of those writings those are all collected by the church right um, Jesus never wrote anything himself right he entrusts all of that work to his apostles and, and you know and so all of that written work gets collected, it gets disseminated to the communities first, right? The various Christian communities. Mm-hmm. And, and the church determines what is and what is not canonical scripture, right? Mm-hmm. And if this was, if we were getting heavy into church history, we would talk about the various synods and councils that put the canon of the New Testament together. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's vital about that process, um, number one is its reception liturgically are these texts being used as liturgical text right because it's in and through our worship right that we express that faith and so if we have this written word that doesn't quite express the same thing that we're expressing in worship well no there's there's an incongruity there right mm-hmm. so that would not work and also does it have roots with the apostles those who knew and walked with christ so the church applied these criteria to the formation of, of the New Testament in order to ensure right that this is authentically the Word of God mm-hmm. right so all that work got done by the church through that charism of leadership I think that you were talking about
0: so in a sense then we can look to uh, even though we, we might argue for uh, and this gets into a whole other discussion which unfortunately we don't have time to get into this idea of the primacy. Uh, of scripture the prima scriptura as opposed to sola scriptura we don't believe that that it's only scripture alone or it's scripture alone but but scripture exercises a primacy Mm. uh in in the life of the church because we have this transmission of the written word of god and it's uh it 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 is even more effective because it's it's a permanent record of of the written word of god whereas with holy tradition you know we can we have, to, we have to apply more discernment, but with the, the scripture, we have something a little bit more concrete right. that can be transmitted generation to generation to generation. Yeah. But holy tradition not only helps us to understand what the word of God is being communicated in the scriptures, it also helps us to identify what's in the scripture, what, mm-hmm. what books belong in the, uh, in, yeah. the, in the scriptures and which ones don't. That's right. um, you know, that that's an important part. And it's, it's an important history to, to seek to understand. Unfortunately, we don't have time no. to to get into it. But I think it's an important thing to uh, to look at. That's right. So with so thank you, Robert and, yeah. and Father Deacon. So so uh, I want to we have a special guest now, Pani, uh, Katie uh, Matlack. We're delighted to have you join us today. So thank you so much for uh, for coming in. And, uh, we, we, I, I set it up earlier on, um, you know, just to kind of say a little bit about who you are. I mentioned that you went to Franciscan university and, uh, father Deacon Anthony and I did as well. So we got a bunch of Stoobie Ubies here, you know, that's all good. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you have a unique ministry, um, in the work that you do in catechesis. And I thought it would be good. You know, they had a chance to meet father Joseph, your husband, uh it'd be good to hear from you a, a little bit about, you know, the work that you do and maybe a little bit of your background, and uh, if, if you'd be willing to share that uh, to, our, to our audience today.
3: Sure, great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. So I was blessed to be able to teach high school theology for a total of 12 years, and during eight of those years, I also worked as a director of campus ministry. And during that time as well, I've spoken at various events such as the catechetical immersion days at franciscan Mm -hmm. Um, i also spoke and presented at the diocese of pittsburgh summer institute for teacher formation so i served as a master catechist for that week of formation Mm -hmm. and the eastern catholic biblical conference of the word of life institute as well as various retreats marriage prep courses conferences and some other events and currently i work for the roman catholic diocese of charlotte excuse me, at Charlotte, as the coordinator of curriculum and certification, as well as the coordinator for TOTUS-TUIS, which is a summer catechetical mission program, and so basically the position now that I'm in is kind of a liaison position between the Office of Faith Formation and the Catholic Schools Office, so it's great. I get the best of both worlds.
0: Right. No, absolutely. That's great, and, and it's catechesis is such an important work uh, because you know it is about uh, not just teaching content, you know, that we, you know, absorb and memorize. It's really about changing lives and 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 helping us to grow in the likeness of God, uh, you know, through believing and having faith, active faith in in what the church communicates to us as as part of our faith. What what would you say, just based on the work that you do, uh, is you know, we think about the role, the relationship between catechesis and discipleship and how it connects to the liturgy, because the liturgy is so much a part of our, our life as Byzantine Christians. Um, I know, especially, you know, for you and, and Father Joseph, I mean, it's, it's a central part of your life. What, what's that connection then between catechesis, discipleship and liturgy? How do you, how would you express that?
3: Sure, that's a great question. I think it's a really important question as well. So both the liturgy and catechesis, as you know, play a crucial role in preserving and fortifying the church and the faith that defines her. Mm -hmm. The liturgy and catechesis, I would say, are most effective when they're seen in connection with one another, because in order for the liturgy to bring about a significant impact in the lives of those who participate in it, they need to be intellectually and spiritually disposed by proper instruction in the faith. And likewise, catechesis, which is meant to guide the faithful to an ever deeper relationship with Christ, will yield its most perfect fruit when it teaches about the liturgy and to the liturgy as an encounter with Christ. And yeah. so the liturgy, as that essential life giving element of the church, is necessarily united to the work of catechesis and discipleship. I think it goes, I think Evagrius of Pontus summarizes it best. And his beautiful, famous quote, when he says, "The one who prays is a theologian, and the one who is a theologian prays."
0: So that means we don't have to have PhDs in theology. Is that is that is that the is that the, <laughs> Father Deacon <laughs> Anthony? Is that is that true? Is that is
1: it? according to the definition? Yes. It okay. appears I wasted a lot of time.
0: <laughs> no, no, absolutely. It's no. an important vocation. <laughs>
3: I'm sure but, if anything, it, it helps, right?
0: Yes, oh, exactly. The more
3: you know, the better you can pray, the more you can love.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and that, that liturgical connection, I think, is so important for people because when they think about learning the faith, very often they think about having a big library of books or having, um, having to memorize answers to questions and things like that. But, but in fact, I, you know, I love what you're stressing there about it's, it's that relationship with Christ, that communion with Christ. This is why we do what we're doing. This is why we're doing becoming Byzantine, because it's it's really about educating people, not just on facts about the faith, but on who Christ is and how do we live the life in Christ. And the liturgy is really that place where all that comes together, scripture, tradition, the word of God, you know, uh, the uh, the moral teaching of the church, all of it comes together even in uh, in the liturgy. Now you, you uh learned a specific method of of, of teaching catechesis. It, it's called is it ecclesial catechesis, is that correct or
3: close, yes, the ecclesial method. Mm-hmm.
0: Ecclesial method. Can you say a little bit about that?
3: Sure. So the ecclesial method is basically a five-step method, if you will, for teaching the faith, making sure that it's authentic and true to the word of God, faithful to the teachings of the magisterium and aimed at not only a knowledge of the faith, but also conversion. Mm. And the the five steps are really based on looking at the way in which Christ, the divine teacher teaches in scripture. So Mm. you see ways in which he goes and and prepares people for the truth about which he's going to explain. So, for example, when he goes to call Peter, actually prior to that call, one of the things he does is he heals his mother-in-law. So we, there's these little things that we see when we look at Christ and what he's doing. Sometimes it's, it can be words or deeds where he's preparing, um, he's preparing those who he's speaking to, to help them to recognize who he is and the truth of which he's speaking. Mm-hmm. And what's beautiful about the method, and I won't go into all of it, because in terms of the, the, the time frame of that, but in terms of the, the steps with those five steps, You have basically your your preparation, your proclamation, which is your central statement at the heart of that teaching. What is that important gospel truth? The one thing that you would want people to walk away from remembering. And then followed by that is the explanation. So it's that unfolding of that truth, keeping all those essential truths that are connected to it, to it, excuse me, that need to be taught. And then there's a step for application, which obviously is very important. That gives that ability for that free willed response of faith. Right. And then the end with the celebration.
0: Very nice, yeah, and it, and it seems very uh, very integrated so that when we're learning our faith again, it's not about something we're learning in a library or things like that. It's really about the participation in the church, which becomes really our relationship with Christ and and that's expressed and experienced liturgically, but also in our life in in general, in the parish and, and outside of, in, in the world too. There's there's a lot of really interesting things there. I'd, I'd love to learn a bit more. Maybe um, maybe afterwards you could send me some information we can pass it along to folks that are uh, that are attending or becoming Byzantine webinar. L- last last question I want to mention <clears throat> or ask in the Catechism Christ or Pascha, we have uh, some wonderful icons. So uh, for those that only have this electronically, they don't get the benefit of all the wonderful images that they have there. But uh, just to kind of show you some some examples of that, we have an icon of the entrance of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, right? Um, we have uh, we have beautiful images that that convey uh, teachings of the faith. Icon of the Nativity of the Mother of God, one of the the feasts uh, in our church's year, um, the first of the great feasts. In fact, in our Byzantine calendar, and I think I ran across another one here. Um, oh. I thought I saw a theophany, but of course, we have on the front cover we have icon of, of Pascha or a Holy Saturday as well. What's what's the importance of of icons when it comes to communicating and, and learning about the faith and uh, and participating in in the in the faith of the church?
3: Well, if you have an hour, I'd love to tell you, but <laughs> I love I love icons. They have always been such a beautiful and powerful way to catechize, as well as a means to help one focus in prayer. And I mm. think that they are all the more relevant to today's visual-based culture, and they prove the age-old adage that a picture is worth a thousand words. The mm. icons, as, as I know you're well familiar with art, they're so theological in their very nature, their very structure. Everything about an icon has a meaning, and it's meant to teach us something this includes the materials that are selected and used, the colors that are chosen, the subjects and the symbols, uh, their overall design, the inverted perspective in which they're drawn. So it's to be that, that window into heaven where the focal point is actually not so much us looking at the icon, but the icon looking at us, which is incredible. That notion of, again, that, that window into heaven where we're looking, but yeah, the subject is looking, in a sense, at us. Right. And... I guess I would say too, I I love learning about new icons and I've really enjoyed using them to teach students, both young and old alike. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're um, such an approachable medium that they're, they're not intimidating. There's something that anybody, no matter what their background level is, or their, their level of knowledge can come up to and look at that icon and they can recognize the truth and the beauty and the goodness that is within that icon. And I would say some of my fondest teaching moments involve the use of icons and the intellectually, uh, excuse me, intellectual like stimulating discussion that I had with my students who were just so excited and enraptured by the theological and symbolic depth of icons. Mm-hmm. They have such a wonderful way of reawakening a sense of wonder and awe in a human person. And I think that we all need that in terms of recognizing and coming before the presence of our Lord in wonder and awe.
0: Yeah, there is, there is this sense in which, um, you know, beauty is the, is the handmaid of truth. It, it, beauty invites us in, and, and it's, it's, uh, it, it kind of transcends. It goes beyond just, you know, kind of verbal uh, engagement or, or reading and understanding, comprehending. There's something that's, that transcends that, and when you experience an icon, because you're looking at an image that, first of all, brings together scripture, tradition, the, the hymnography of the church... Uh, You know, all these elements that we say are part of the teaching of the faith. But then it presents it in such a beautiful way, it it sort of invites you into a participation that's different uh, than what you might get out of out of a book, I think sometimes. Um, And so I can see that being a powerful teaching aid. For for children, I th- I think certainly even even now as a priest, I have uh, icons uh, from time to time on my holy table, and I'm I get to gaze at the at these icons, you know, especially the ones that are being blessed. Uh, the, the we we put the icons on the on the holy table for a number of days uh, in in the blessing of them, and so you get you, you it's really a sense of encounter. It's more than just uh, you know I'm looking at a pretty picture uh, or I, I you know an artistic expression of something. I'm I'm really encountering christ or or those who are in christ the saints through through these images well uh well thank you so much Pani, for uh for taking the time to be with us to kind of share your perspective and uh we're just we're delighted uh for the all the work that uh, you're doing with some of the other programs we have going on and and father joseph uh as well and uh and uh certainly look forward to um to possibly bringing you back and providing some perspective as well for those especially involved in catechetical ministry ministry or those that want to uh, continue to grow in catechesis you know what are some of those those opportunities to do that so maybe if you send me that that list of the five i'd love to share that if that's okay absolutely uh, thank you so much well and and so we've we are coming to the end of our time uh i want to just uh, share one more thing and um while we're while we're thinking about our participation in the Bis- becoming Byzantine series, <coughs> excuse me, uh, an important component to that is uh, first of all attending the monthly webinar. So make sure you register for the webinar. Uh, make sure that you you go on to the Ticket Tailor site, register for the webinar. The next one coming up in November. Uh, read the portions of the Catechism that are assigned as part of that, and all that's in the Ticket Tailor site. So you can follow along and 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 continue to read and listen. Listen to the weekly lesson. So Father Joseph Matlakpanti's husband has done a great job of uh, pulling together information and presenting it in a fifteen to twenty-minute presentation. Very short presentation, good summary to help reinforce uh, the learning from the from the readings of the catechism. And then of course, take all this to prayer. Uh, reflect on it. Maybe spend some time in discussion. Hopefully, that's a, a chance for you and your churches or in your prayer groups or you know your families to, to really take some time to learn a little bit more about um, our Byzantine Catholic faith. So uh, again we're, we're looking at uh, Catechism, Christ or Pascha, paragraphs 12 to 70 for the next month. So we'll talk about God's revelation, holy tradition, the Holy Scriptures. A lot of what we share today will be, um, will be reflected in the Catechism, but you're going to see a lot more and learn a lot more if you if you go through and read those passages and listen to, most importantly the videos, that Father Joseph provided. So we'll have those videos sent out, uh, the latest by Tuesday morning. So you should see those by Tuesday morning. I'll have to do a little bit of video editing today because, because my, of my wifi uh, glitches, but, um, but we should have all that, uh, all that ready to go by, by Tuesday morning. Um, well, I want to say, uh, thank you in a special way to, uh, uh, to certainly our panelists, our hosts here, uh, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, uh, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Bianca Gill, and our special guest, Pani Katie Matlack, uh, for coming and sharing their own perspectives and faith. Uh, Father Deacon, would you be willing to conclude us uh, with a prayer?
1: would be happy to. So we talked a, a bit today about, you know, theology and liturgy going together. So I'm going to conclude here with the Traparian from the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. amen. Let us, the faithful, acclaim and worship the Word, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, and born of the Virgin for our salvation, for he will to be lifted up on the cross in the flesh, to suffer death, and to raise the dead by his glorious resurrection.
0: Amen and may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. Glory to Jesus Christ.
1: Glory forever.
0: Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next November. Uh, We're looking forward to our third webinar. And we'll send out the link to everyone. You'll get your YouTube uh, channel links as well. Uh, So be looking for those. And uh, God bless you all. Have a great, uh, great month.